You're listening to a Monday Breakfast podcast on 3CR 855 AM. Thanks for tuning in. 3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation, Wurundjeri, and Bunurong peoples. We pay respects to elders, past, present, and emerging, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations peoples. In the face of ongoing colonization and settlement, we acknowledge sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. Good morning, and it's the 5th of August. Oh, where does the year go? Sorry, I can't even hear myself talking now, okay. but that's all good, yep. Yeah. <laughs> so, Dean, um, yeah, uh, welcome to the 5th of August <laughs> and to 3CR Monday Breakfast. It's on. starting to get lighter now in it the mornings. Yes, yeah. I noticed that too. Yeah. And the other thing I noticed is I haven't had any frost on my windscreen, not any Monday for all so far in all of July. Uh-huh. I think in June there was a morning, but it, so it's been. I my sense is it's been a fairly mild uh, winter. Oh no way! No, yeah, no. I think that's been, well. I mean, talking about the weather today, partly cloudy, winds north to northeasterly, um, tending north to northwesterly. For all of you who are going out there kite surfing, uh, with a slight five percent chance of shower, but the rest of the week is where. You might get some frost. So tomorrow, okay, it's I spoke too soon. Of, yeah, <laughs> apparently it's coming this it's week. It's coming. Okay. Um, but yeah, winter came early, and and you're right. It hasn't. It, it's been. I think it's been colder than normal. Do but, you? Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, well, colder than normal. I'm probably talking about 20 years ago. <laughs> I mean, it's my... <laughs> Quite normally. Uh, know, yeah. Yes, who knows? And, uh, you know, I was thinking it was going to be really... Uh, you know, you hear all these stories about, you know, freezing Melbourne and how cold Melbourne is in winter. But uh, so far for me, to me anyway, yeah, yeah. it hasn't been too bad. But maybe I'm just bad. having too much fun. That's right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's right. Well, I mean, I think uh, I bought gloves probably 10 years ago, and I thought I'd never get to use these at home, but over the last four years I have. You know, oh, okay. I, I wear them oh, pretty much right. all the time. Oh, so, um, mm. yeah, that today we've got a, a, a jam-packed show, actually. Um, we do, but just before we, we talk about that, I just want yeah. to say Alice isn't with us this morning because she's uh, off in the UK, sorry, no, Boris Don- Johnson. Yes, and we're going BJ, <laughs> boom, boom, <laughs> Boris. Yes, and uh, so we'll be looking forward to hearing what she's going to tell us when she gets back. When so just a shout-out to Alice. Hopefully yeah. um, you're enjoying your the middle of the night there, waking up to listen to the show. Yeah, of course she is. I'm sure <laughs> she is. <laughs> um, we've got yeah. uh, Louise Sales from Friends of the Earth, sorry, Emerging Tech Project, talking to us about you know the, the call by the Greens to block GM deregulation. And that's uh, coming up shortly. Changes, so that's yeah. coming up shortly. And then yeah. at 7.30 we'll touch with um, Hope Street to talk to, to the CEO Donna there about National Homelessness Week, which yeah. started yesterday and runs for the whole week. And I just realised we didn't thank Beyond Zero. Oh, yes. And we, because that was a really interesting show this morning. I really, I always enjoy it. But anyway, just looking at um, climate change and the impact it's going to have on people living 
living in low-lying countries in the Pacific. So, yeah, that was great. Just coming back to the show today, after 8, we'll be hearing the interview that Alice did for us, the interview she did before she went away, and that will be on populism. So uh, that's going to be an interesting one for sure. That's with um, Benjamin, Benjamin Moffat, Moffat yeah, yeah, from the Australian Catholic University. So we'll hear that at 8. And then after that, we're going to be speaking with Paul Sutton, on silicosis and the the rise in silicosis in Australia and, and how it's related to mm. work sites and um, you know, needing to have stronger oversight of and safety requirements there. The I, I didn't even know what it was until I was at Queensliff at the pub talking to this kid and um, he just said, oh, I can't work anymore. And I'm like, the kid would have been 28 or so. Oh, and he yeah. goes, oh, I've been cutting the oh. tables, you know, to yeah. make the bench tops and yes, exactly. I had this it. little thing in my lung and yeah, I can't do that anymore. I've got to go and look for a whole new career. So he's been doing it since he was 17. Yes, um, and I, I heard yeah. another story about someone too. Yes, it's, it, yeah. So anyway, Paul Sutton will fill us in on all of that. And um, just before eight, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Peter Walters, who and we've all been kind of riveted over the weekend about what's been happening in Hong Kong, as we have actually over the last couple of months. And uh, so he's going to talk about how the protesters are using public space in Hong Kong. It's very clever. Yeah, it's in, uh, I was listening to reports about that last Thursday, and the report that came through was our Chinese protesters disrupting morning commute. And that was the only report on, you know, on mainstream media that these uh, these Chinese protesters are disrupting morning commute. It's like, well, it's a bigger picture than just the morning commute. Oh, it sure is. And in fact, just just overnight, The Guardian put out an an article talking about the groups using uh, flash mobs now. So they appear in a place, they disappear and they appear again somewhere else. So, yes, I'm really looking forward to that interview. So it's going to be. Yeah, a big show this morning. But the other big item in the news has been about whether or not Australia was going to respond to the U.S. request to be involved in in Iran in the Straits of Hormuz and uh, looking after the, the shipping there and making sure it's safe. Now, this but that's quite a, a mixed message too because I think I just saw one of the paper headlines today talking about U.S. calling on Australia as an ally to fight. China and it's like, well, what, what do we? What, who are we? Who yeah. are we, Dean? <laughs> and who are we focusing on? You know, are we yeah. focusing on, on the Chinese or are we focusing on yeah. the Straits of Hormuz at the moment? I mean, there's so much going on. And the other thing is, I saw something about uh, Australia moving to make um, the whole port of Darwin area kind of to nationalise it. Yeah. Yeah, so that the port facility that's owned by the Chinese company is no longer possible. Anyway, look, it's so much to keep an eye on. But just coming back to the Straits of Hormuz and what's going on there, um, I think early June we had an interview with um, David Olney uh, just about, you know, what's going on. And I put to him, you know, what would happen or will uh, Australia join in with the U.S. on that. And we haven't heard the decision yet, but we're probably going to hear it very soon. Anyway, I asked him, did he think they would? And this is how he responded. We regularly get involved in American adventures so that we maintain access to intelligence and military equipment and technology. A war with Iran would probably initially be a naval and air assault, take a port, perhaps get a bridgehead, and then discover that trying to control Iran would make Iraq and Afghanistan combined look pleasant. We wouldn't be organised early enough to be part of the naval and air assault and we would hopefully not be called upon to support
support any kind of occupation of Iranian space because I think it would be an infinitely bloodier war with an infinitely more sophisticated enemy than even Iraq or Afghanistan has been. This does have the feeling to me of the weapons of mass destruction fiasco that um, people all went along with. Precisely. It feels an awful lot like 2003. That build-up was just full of smoke and mirrors, cost an immense amount of lives, an immense amount of suffering, an immense amount of money for no gain. My warning would want to be, be careful what you wish for, Washington, because there is such a risk of this looking like 2003 to 2009 in Iraq, but worse. Don't do it. Wouldn't you think Australia and Britain have learned their lesson from 2003? I think what Australia and Britain know is that we live in a dangerous world, and particularly in Australia's case, we feel like we're at sea, in a sense, in the world without a very big ally. Historically, we don't know how to function without a significant ally. We went from the British Empire to America because... Churchill you know, abandoned us to our lot. Yes. So we grabbed hold of the Americans, and as much as we've built better relationships with our neighbourhood and we're beginning to understand our bit of the world better, we still seem to need to balance this with having the theoretical support of one of the world's superpowers, well, the only superpower at the moment, and I'm not sure we're going to grow out of that need anytime soon because we've been habituated to that being part of our strategic view for too many decades. And that was David Olney, who's a senior analyst at SAGE International Australia, an independent think tank that conducts research on global and political issues. And I just find it incredible that uh, this is a, a, a problem, a situation of Donald Trump's making. Mm. He pulled out of the treaty... He imposed sanctions, and now he's asking people to come in and, yeah, to and, help, hel- and help him out. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. And, and, of course, how long will Donald Trump be there? I mean, there's an election coming up. There's talk of impeachment. I do think Australia's got to think very carefully about this one. Mm, mm, yeah, yeah. And, and it's probably um, reflected in the fact that the, uh, Mike Pompei, the U.S. Secretary of State, Pompeo, yeah, yeah. has made this trip over. You know, in the oh, past, absolutely. these guys wouldn't even yeah. bother. But he was quoted as saying that um, the time is right because the challenge China pr- uh, presents to us in the region is upon us, whether that is the mil- militarisation of the South China Sea or their Belt and Road Initiative. We need to have a determined effort to battle China. So we'll go to war in the Middle East yeah. with the U.S., perhaps, yeah. <laughs> and then we'll also take on China. And I, the only people I can think that are benefiting from this are the arms manufacturers. Yes, yeah, for sure. For yeah, sure. It's, it's very worrying. I, I apologize for, for making Monday morning like this, but it has been quite a weekend and, and quite a lot to keep, a, keep an eye mm. on. But mm. I think probably time for just a bit of music. And, Dean, what do you reckon? Have we got oh, some I... music lined up at all? Yes, or? we do. We do. Yeah. It's a, uh, Teskey Brothers. For the boys from Warrandyte. I yes. didn't know that. I get up. was the amazing uh, Teskey Brothers and, and uh, with I Get Up and I hope you did this morning and I hope you're uh, listening to us here at 3CR Monday Breakfast. It's uh, great to have your company if you are 
And uh, we're just about to speak with uh, Louise Sales. And, and uh, given the kind of dark beginning about what's going on in the world, I think we actually have some good news. Oh, oh, let's hope so. Let's hope so. It is uh, very, very good news, actually, at what um, the Friends of the Earth are doing. What has happened is the Greens uh, were calling on the government to, um, prov- to, to stop deregulating dangerous new genetic modification techniques like CRISPR, with um, Senator Janet Rice introducing a motion to disallow the proposed changes to the gene technology regulations. But to find out a little bit more about why Friends of the Earth are supporting the Greens, we are joined by Louise Sells from the Friends of the Earth Emerging Tech Project. Good morning, Louise. Good morning. Sorry about that. I just got my... That, I struggled to say friends of the earth. Early in the morning. Was, yeah. <laughs> um, just can, can you tell us, I guess, a little bit about why friends of the earth are supporting the Greens to prevent the government from deregulating dangerous new genetic modification techniques like CRA? Yeah, well, fr- friends of the earth has actually been campaigning on, on this issue for the last couple of years once it became clear that the government was planning to deregulate these techniques. Um, so, yeah, CRISPR is, is one of the techniques, but there's a few different GM techniques that the government's proposing to deregulate. Um, and from, yeah, from our perspective, this is really just a, an attempt to deregulate GMOs by stealth so they can sneak them into our food chain without labelling or safety testing. Yeah, and I guess, you know, besides the serious risks to the environment and human health, there would be significant important economic risks to consider as well? That's right. I mean, obviously, our primary concerns are, are health, like but what the government's proposing is to, to release yeah, un, untested GMOs into the environment and our food chain, which we think is in, incredibly dangerous. Um, they're arguing that these new GM techniques um, don't pose any greater risk than, than traditional breedings, but the science is really showing us completely the opposite, that all, all of these um, new GM techniques have unexpected um, effects associated with them and mu- mutations. Um, and as, as you said, um, there's also economic risks as well. Um, so we, we could be looking at complete market rejection from export markets because Europe said it's going to regulate these techniques, mm. as has New Zealand, and um, they're both important trading partners. And there's an and and Europe's basically got zero tolerance for the presence of unapproved GMOs. So if we deregulate these techniques here, we could just be looking at complete market block. And I guess, yeah, with different countries and organisations defining genetically modified slightly different, um, we know that GM sort of refers to making changes to a living thing's genetic information that would otherwise not occur by natural mating or reproduction. Um, and it is essential to have a sustainable food system. You know, people want healthy, safe foods to feed themselves and their family. Um, it seems like the government is putting our food at increased risk by considering the deregulation of these editing techniques. What, what do you think is the way possibly to a healthy and sustainable food supply? Um, you know, and I guess where do these new modification techniques fit in? Yeah, well, I think, um, I mean, I think certainly some of these new GM techniques like CRISPR are exciting from a, particularly a medical perspective, mm. but I don't think anyone in the medical community is arguing that they shouldn't be 
assessed for safety before they're used. Um, and in this case, the push is really coming from the big GM crop companies, so like Bayer and BASF um, and Dow, so the big agrochemical companies. Um, and they're making very many of the same promises that they made for earlier GMOs that mm. haven't materialized, like, oh, we need these techniques to feed the world. Um, but actually, when the, when the UN looked looked at um, new biotechnology techniques as part of its agricultural, there was a 13-year agricultural assessment. They actually concluded that um, GM crops aren't going to pay, play a significant role in, in feeding the world and solving some of these big environmental problems, and they're particularly concerned with the patents associated with, with GM crops mm. and these new GM techniques as well because um, it means that farmers can no longer save their seed um, with the majority Without of farmers. Without having to pay a the, fee. That's right. So the majority of um, farmers, particularly in the developing world, um, are reliant on save it, saving their seeds, um, and they would no longer be able to do that. That's re Sorry, Louise, it's Judith here. That is really disturbing. I remember when that story first broke quite a, lo quite a while ago now, and I understand that uh, and particularly when there's a group of women in India who are, have a seed bank that they were using to protect their seeds. So this is very worrying. I, think, I, I thought there was going to be some good news. I thought there was going to be a halt in, in mm. some of the testing here in Australia. Well, I mean, certainly that's what the... the Greens are trying to do with this um, with this motion. Um, so, but we we still need the ALP to support them basically. Uh, yes. So we're encouraging people to get in touch with their local Labour senator and and put pressure on them because um, La Labour haven't had a great record recently. <laughs> They've been voting with the government recently on a whole raft of different things, um, and we're really hoping that they yeah grow a bit of a spine on this one and actually um, take a principled stance and, and support science based regulation. And we've just been um, talking about the U.S. being here calling for help in battling China. But, you know, with, with um, Australian agricultural exports to China alone being nearly $12 billion, covering a huge suite of agricultural communities, what, what sort of impact will this deregulation potentially have on our organic farming industry and our traditional agriculture export industries as well? Yeah, so China, similarly to Europe, has got a zero tolerance for the presence of unapproved GMOs, mm. um, and that has led to, to market rejection in the past. So, for example, there was a variety of GM corn that was introduced in, in the U.S. that hadn't been approved in China, yeah. and as a result, China just completely blocked ex corn exports, um, and so the U.S. corn industry basically lost $3 billion in, in corn exports, and that's a very real risk for for Australia, but I mean, the organic industry is is deeply threatened, as is any non-GM farming by this, because what's an important distinction with these new GM techniques is unless you have prior knowledge of what the genetic modification was, yeah. um, you, you can't test for it. Um, so there's, there's going to be no, if they're deregulated, there's going to be no requirement for traceability. So it's really, really hard for anyone to who's trying to ensure a non-GM supply chain to to keep GMOs out. Because you're essentially, you're essentially doing um, genetic modification on something that probably already has had genetic modification. You know, it's like a third generation GM product as well. If, if mm. you, you know, if the regulations um, weren't so strong to begin with, you might sort of have a crop that has been done in a lab and then all of a sudden they go, oh, we need to do this, and then it might be like a GMO version two, so to speak. Mm. And then it's a bit hard to sort of go, well, what, what was the original sort of, um, I guess, the, the mating or reproduction system of that crop to begin with. Yeah, and I think you've, you've touched on something that's really 
important is that these techniques can be used um, sequentially to make really quite drastic changes to the genome. So you mm. can use them again and again and again and, and have, yeah, something with a, a GMO with really quite different properties. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, it just ra yeah, it raises a whole raft of safety issues. So actually the a, a whole issue that we haven't really touched on yet is um, the biosafety risks associated with these, these organisms because... Yeah. Um, if they're deregulated, it's not just going to be in, in plants, it's also going to be an, in animals and in microorganisms as well, which means that anybody is going to be able to use these techniques to genetically modify microbes, um, which obviously poses very real risks um, to the environment and to human health. Uh, and and you've uh, just asked uh -huh. the Department of Agriculture and Water Resources to release the six-page advice it gave to the Legislative and Governance Forum on Gene Technology on the trade impacts, obviously, but... I see they refused. That's right. So they're arguing that was a um, co yeah confidential document, mm. and it was deliberations between the state and the federal government. But we yeah. think it's it's vital vital that um, we're told what kind of information they're basing this decision on because it's, yeah. it's clearly a, a six-page document is not a comprehensive assessment of of the risks um, posed by these techniques. Do you think that's it? Do you think that's all they've used a six-page document to make the decision? Uh, well, they, that's what happened was the states asked for information on, on the potential economic impacts of deregulation and, yeah, and the agriculture department produced a six-page document. <laughs> Which we're not allowed to see. Which we're not allowed to see, yeah. I, 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 did, I, did, I did like the letter, though, that, that, that came back to you. It was very, very personalised. You know, the words, I refuse to give you the document. I have made the decision based <laughs> on this. It's like, well, hang on. Aren't we part of an organisation that should be making, not just the individual? Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm wondering, Louise, what are the chances that, that Labor will um, will support it? I mean, so far they haven't really distinguished themselves much from the coalition in, in terms of going along with just about everything, every policy proposal that's gone up. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll obviously be doing our best to ramp up the pressure on them. So this is going to be discussed in, in September, um, probably in mid-September. Um, so we'd encourage anyone that's um, concerned about the issue to to get in touch with Chris Bowen. So he's the, the shadow health minister. So he's ultimately the person that's going to be making the decision. And I think, yeah, we just really need to hold Labour to account on this. Because um, yes. the other thing that's really significant is this is actually going on in a complete media vacuum. I mean, we've been trying really hard to get mainstream media coverage of this and, and completely failing. So it's great that there's shows like yours out there that are prepared to, to discuss this issue. Um, well, th thanks, Louise. That's great. And we certainly are prepared to discuss it. But you're right that it needs to, to be more broadly discussed and it needs to get into the pub. You know, everyone needs to be aware of this. It's a huge concern. <laughs> And sometimes it seems like, you know, because of the wording and everything that's done, they make it so complicated that people just don't even want to know what genetically modified foods or, or techniques are being used in their food. So, you know, it's, it's that sort of, if I, I don't know too much about it, so I'll just read what I can and eat what I can. And it seems like they're allowed to get a you know, large organisations are just sort of allowed to keep slowly getting away with making modifications to our food. I think people yeah. become overwhelmed by the science mm. of it as well, as, as kind of as Dean was pointing out. So do you, I'm sure you have information on your website that would be accessible. We do, yeah. So our, our website's emergingtech.fo.org.au. Yeah, and there's, there's a whole bunch of information up there on this. I, I think, you, yeah, I think you're right about the, 
the the science because and, and that's why they're getting away with this. I think is because it's like oh, it's it's technical, um, and it's be, the government's arguing that um, only only scientists that have basically conflicts of interest in the technique can have a say in how they're regulated, which is obviously yeah really problematic. Um, yes, and it's, yeah, it's really important that more people get get engaged in this conversation. Well, Louise, thank you very much for yeah for just um, filling us in, and hopefully uh, a lot of our listeners can get in touch with uh, Chris Bowen there and support uh, the Greens and Senator Janet Rice in introducing this motion. Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you. And that was uh, Louise Sells, who is from the Emerging Tech Project at Friends of the Earth, and she mentioned that their website is emergingtech. FOE.org.au, and you can find some information there. We'll be and do some letter writing. Yes, uh, <laughs> or emailing, well, or you know, I, I think yeah. I think Chris Bowen uh, probably needs a few letters sent to him at the moment. Mm. Now that he's getting over his uh, missing out on the Labor leadership, <laughs> we'll be back in just a moment. This is our country. We've never forgotten where we've come from. Well, who? We are. We keep our culture strong. Now it's time to come together. Talk as equals. And write our own future. This is our country. And this is our time. Treaty is time. Enroll now for the First People's Assembly of Victoria election. Authorised by the Victorian Treaty Advancement Commission, Melbourne. Emma Donovan and the putbacks with uh, that beautiful Ruby Hunter song, Down City Streets. National Homelessness Week is an annual week coordinated by Homelessness Australia to raise awareness of people experiencing homelessness and the issues they face and the action needed to achieve enduring solutions. Uh, it came about from various churches and missions running winter vigils to remember people who had died on the streets. It runs from the 4th, which was yesterday, till the 10th of August and is coordinated by Homelessness Australia with the aim of raising awareness of people experiencing homelessness, the, the issues they face and the action needed to achieve uh, enduring solution. The 2019 theme for Homelessness Week is Housing Ends Homelessness. Hope Street Youth and Family Services, one of Victoria's longest-serving specialist youth homelessness services, has marked Homelessness Week by calling for Melbournians to provide welcome home packs for young people who are experiencing homelessness. To tell us more about these packs, we are joined by Hope Street's Chief Executive Officer, who we had on a couple of weeks ago, Donna Bennett. Good morning, Donna. Good morning, Dean. Good morning to your listeners. Thank you for uh, joining us on uh, 3CR. 
Misha? Now, I mean, with roughly 6,000 young people aged between 12 and 24 years of old experiencing homelessness in Victoria on any given night, and, and I guess most of these having left home due to domestic and family violence, what opportunities does Homelessness Week present to shine the national spotlight onto the growing issue, I guess, of homelessness, and in particular, youth homelessness? I think the opportunity is, is, as you've just said, it's about shining the light or highlighting what are some of those issues that uh, people who experience homelessness face. Homelessness is extremely hidden. It's not something that's highly visible in our community. Um, a very small percentage of people who experience homelessness are visible on the street that we might see in city centres, capital city centres. Most people who are homeless are actually quite hidden from society. So it's important that uh, weeks such as Homelessness Week um, highlights the fact that um, far more people, at astonishingly high numbers, over 100,000 people at any one time in Australia, across Australia, are experiencing homelessness at any one time. So I think that... Yeah, sorry to sorry. You know, you, you said you said it was hidden. So I'm I'm wondering if you could just describe uh, what you mean by hidden. Yes. Um, so what I mean by hidden is people are sleeping in their cars in parks. People might be sleeping in friends' garages. Young people tend to couch surf a lot. Um, sleeping in sleeping in parks where they're actually not visible to people. I've, I've even heard of families sleeping in cars in cemeteries um, where they feel that no one will go so that they can be safe. Um, by that, that's what I mean by hidden. They're not visible to people. They could be in, in um, rooming houses that are unregulated, um, extremely poor conditions, paying extremely high rents to those rooming houses. We would classify that as homelessness. Yes, I can uh, so, understand. Yes, yes. So it, it's in those types of forms. Sometimes people also will form a relationship that's not a, a healthy relationship with someone else, just to have a um, a roof over their head. That mm. that is homelessness as well. And, and, and I think, um, you know, I mentioned that, and I'll get back to the pack and what it means and why that's really important. Yeah. You know, the inability to shower often and maintain good hygiene often that's adds right. to those existing health issues. Um, but the, the theme for Homelessness Week is housing ends homelessness. And with almost 40% of people who were homeless at risk of homelessness in Victoria, um, the stats show they were being refused when they were seeking help last year. What, what are some of the things that hope? Street um, is calling on the government to provide as the Andrews government, I guess, keeps failing to increase the size of Victoria's social housing stocks. Yes, well, for us, we certainly would are very strong advocates for a monumental boost to social and public housing. This is critical. Um, Why are people homeless? Because they don't have a home. They don't actually have the bricks and mortar. So number one is we actually need to increase the physical stock that is available for people. In terms of young people, um, that stock, a percentage of that stock needs to be quarantined or allocated to young people. 
if it's not, young people tend to miss out. Mm. This is what we've seen over the years. So it has to, not only do we need to see a huge increase in stock, but it must be quarantined, a percentage of it must be quarantined for young people. We also need to see the construction of more youth refuges, particularly in growth corridors. Um, there's, you know, we've undergone a major housing boom over the last decade or more. Um, and the growth corridors of Melbourne have grown um, considerably. What we really need to see with that, because uh, we need to see the infrastructure keep up with that growth, the social infrastructure keep up with that growth. Unfortunately, with growth in these areas also comes vulnerability and disadvantage for certain groups. And young people who are in families of family violence, they're one of those groups and they leave for that reason. Therefore, we need to be able to provide them with crisis accommodation as well as longer-term accommodation so they can still stay in their local area. At the moment, they have to travel further in towards the CBD in order to secure that type of accommodation. I have to say that the uh, Andrews government has funded two new, two new refuges that came from the recommendations of the... Uh, uh, Royal Commission into Family Violence report, and we're very pleased about that. One of those youth refuges, Hope Street, is constructing in Melton, and it's due to be completed by the end of the year. Um, however, we need more of that type of vision, visionary thinking by this government. Mm. The uh, other thing, of course... Yes? No, you go. The other thing, of course, is um, Hope Street, and a part of that is that Hope Street is is working with the city of Whittlesea to do just that. We are working with them to try and build a youth refuge in the city of Whittlesea. Mm. But on top of that, we also need, once a young person goes into a refuge, Dean, where do they go from there? So um, this is where we need other types of innovative programs as well to move people out of crisis accommodation, particularly for young people, and into longer-term accommodation. Yeah, and I guess some of the some of the things like you know the campaign for everybody's home, which focuses on things like supporting first home buyers, uh, a better deal for renters. When you're between the ages of 12 and 24, you're not in a position to get support as a first home no. buyer. But you know the, the immediate relief for chronic rental stress obviously is quite important if you're in your 20s. But the the key thing here is to is a plan to end homelessness by 2030 um, and you're a couple of weeks ago when we spoke you talked about that youth um, service in Malusi which will have a purpose built 13 bedroom crisis yes. accommodation but in the meantime people who are homeless you during this National Homelessness Week you are providing them a welcome home pack can you tell us a, a little bit about that and how people can get their yes. hands on that yes absolutely so um, of course, when young people come into our service, they tend, our services, they tend to have nothing with them, really, just a, a small bag of essential clothing. Um, so as a way of welcoming young people, we like to provide them with a small pack of essential care items, such as a towel, toiletries, um, that type of thing, so that uh, pyjamas, um, so that they can feel welcome. Um, and so what we're asking is that uh, people in the community, if they would like to make a donation of about $30, that $30 is what it costs for us to put together the um, welcoming pack for young people. 
Um, and any donations to Hope Street via our website are tax deductible. And where can people um, yeah, donate for the Welcome Home Packs during National Homelessness Week? Yep, they can donate on our website, so um, www.hopestreet.org, um, and, uh, and our, um, they'll just follow the links there and that will take them to our donation section, and that, and that donation will go towards the um, welcome pack for our young people, which I have to say absolutely make a difference when someone comes into our program and a young person comes into our program, they're extremely nervous, they're extremely apprehensive and to be presented with something as welcoming as that and that they can keep um, always just helps with that first step of letting them know that they'll be okay. Well, Donna, it, it, it's, not a, an, a, 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 it's not an ending uh, problem, homelessness, and it will keep going. No. But at least, um, you know, being able to give some of these young children, we're talking about obviously the youth of, of um, Melbourne and I guess the youth of Australia in general, if they can get their, their hands on some essential self-care items when they're going through that, it's a good initiative. And so people can go to www.hopestreet, it's actually H-O-P-E-S-T, .org.au, not the full street, to donate to those $30 tax-deductible um, packs. We, we appreciate you joining us on 3CR Monday Breakfast. Thank you very much, Dean, and thank you to your listeners. And have a good morning. You too. Thank you. And that was Donna Bennett, the uh, CEO of Hope Street. Um, you know, we have so many... Um, activities or initiatives that are happening you know obviously we've got homelessness week we've got ndis week we've got a lot yeah, of a lot of, lot of yeah, special and, week. and there's yeah. a lot of people in the community doing things i just can't having kids myself i can't imagine what a 12 13 14 yeah. year old homeless yes child and i think donna through. donna described you know the the dimensions of the issue you know and some of the hidden aspects but you know what dean when i first moved to australia arrived here in the 1980s the same arguments were being put mm. it's a long mm. time and still the government has not acted and and also the the things that precipitated like things like violence yeah. at home i mean the, these are connected with lots of different things so it, the homelessness is so yeah Important to really begin to address it at a deep level as well as provide the packs, which is a great initiative. And that was the umbrella song uh, written to encourage the Hong Kong protesters in 2014 when they were first took to the streets uh, to. Uh, uh, protest against the encroachment on their democratic rights within Hong Kong. And, um, of course, in the last uh, few weeks, last month now, um, those protests have uh, grown up again, um, and particularly in response to the, the suggestion to, to introduce an extradition treaty. And as many as two million 
out of a population of 7.5 million people have taken to the streets in Hong Kong to protest the erosion of their democratic rights. And even over the weekend, Dean, I mean, there was yet again new mm. protests in The Guardian. There was an article just um, came out about six hours or maybe by now eight hours ago uh, talking about um, the use of uh, flash mobs in Hong Kong. But right now we have Dr. Peter Walters, an urban sociologist from the University of Queensland, who's just written an article on how Hong Kong protesters have been winning the battle for public space. So, Peter Walters, welcome to 3CR Monday Breakfast. Oh, good morning. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for getting up early to speak to us this morning. That's quite okay. <laughs> yeah. Not daylight, and, not, not daylight saving, yet. <laughs> no, no, that's right. So there isn't an hour difference, which is always handy when you're trying to work it out. Now, Peter, yeah. I'm, I'm wondering um, why you, what prompted you to write this article? Well, um, I'm interested, but the, the research that I do is, is very much tied up with public space and how, in many cities, public space is, is disappearing through various, through various means. And um, I guess the, the protests in Hong Kong, um, you know, most of the media attention has been on the issues that are being debated and protested, but... I also started thinking about Hong Kong as one of the most densely populated and built cities in the world and the particular problems that protesters confront when they're trying to to protest in a mass way like this in a city like Hong Kong, which doesn't have any obvious, you know, massive public spaces like other cities might have. Yes, it's very densely populated, as you say, and the public spaces that are there are fairly small. Yes. So um, protesters have, have taken to the streets and they've done that so far very effectively. And I think at the moment with a, a lot of public support, even from those who aren't protesting, and they've used social media and other sort of online applications very effectively to coordinate those protests. So at the moment, they're sort of dominating public space, but I'm not sure how much longer that will Wow. Well, I think we're all all quite anxious about that. And I did see on the weekend that as uh, protesters retired from a space that uh, residents came in and started arguing with the police and, uh, you know, supporting the protesters and the young people, but not only young people involved. So so they've, they've made the streets public space, haven't they? They have. I mean, the streets kind of are public space, but in, but in most cities we, we sort of hand them over to, to traffic, but they're <laughs> often much easier to use than, say, a shopping mall. For instance, in, in Brisbane, we have the Queen Street Mall. I think you have, a, you have the Flinders Street Mall in, in Melbourne. Is that correct? Sorry, the, um, the, the Bird Street Mall, but hmm. the shopping mall. Yes, that's um, right, yes. They, they are sort of quasi-public spaces. They're, they're mostly controlled by, by private interests and the interests of retail. So it's often much more difficult to even start a protest in those places. And this is why people often take to the streets, which are more of a public realm than ironically, than places like public shopping malls. And you've also spoken in your article not just about the physical space, which I guess will be the streets and uh, shopping streets and areas of Hong Kong, but you've also talked about the use of digital space. Yes. You know, so so how, have they commu- how have protesters communicated? It's a really interesting um, phenomenon because there are no obvious leaders of this particular movement. Um, there's no one that anyone's pointing their finger to and saying this is the leadership group. Um, and they're using social media apps, ones that are a bit like Reddit, and often the, the various actions that, that are planned are done, you know, almost democratically through, you know, discussion on social media and, you know, a number of likes 
or the way that a particular uh, idea is elevated through these social media apps means that they're the ones that take hold and they're the ones that take place. It's very decentralised. The authorities uh, find it very difficult to monitor these, this sort of communication uh, and they can't put their finger on any particular individual. And I understand this is partly a response to the Umbrella Revolution where they did have leaders identified and they have now decided to be more diverse around that. But how have they avoided surveillance? I mean, it's a very high surveillance society, <laughs> Hong Kong. Mm. It is. You know, they're, they're using various methods. They're still using umbrellas, they're using face masks, masks are using different methods. to. So, so the face facial. masks would be avoiding facial recognition, presumably. They're avoiding fa- facial recognition technology. They're using handheld lasers to disrupt um, facial recognition technology. And uh, as we wrote in the article, they're also using simple methods like, like not using the electronic um, metro card. They're, they're lining up for paper tickets. So... That's interesting. That's interesting. Movements through, mm. you know, through, through the electronic cards. I'm kind of wondering about about the role that um, music plays uh, in in uh, taking over the public space. I think just a few weeks ago, the protesters were singing um, um, "Sing Hallelujah to the Lord" and even threatening the police that if you don't leave us alone, we'll sing Hallelujah to the to the Lord. Here's just a bit of that. Uh, we're going to pl- listen to that now. And talk about coordination. I mean, we've we've got the men's section and we've got the women's section, plus a bit of traffic in the background. But what role would singing play in claiming public space? I guess I, I guess it helps to, to, to sort of shape people's viewpoint uh, of, of the way that public space is being used. If people are singing beautifully, I guess it, it becomes harder and harder for the tag of, of, of rioter or disturbers of the public peace to hold. So what they're doing, I guess, is singing probably to a domestic audience, but uh, making it harder for the authorities to actually take any, any violent action against people who are singing hymns. Yes, and, and of course, strong um, um, Christian groups involved in those protests as well. Can you tell us something about the Lenin Wall as another way of taking up public space? Messages of support to the protesters usually, and messages, you know, on those little different colored, you know, posters. Yeah, and then yeah, they and yeah. they put them up all over that wall. So, so what seems to be happening now is. Um, they're going up all over the city, these uh, walls. And even in Melbourne, actually, there was a demonstration not in front of Parliament House, uh, a pro- um, demonstration for the Hong Kong protesters. And they had a little mini <laughs> Lenin wall, which is why I was thinking about it, Peter. <laughs> it was here even in Melbourne, but just a little one. And there were people yes. writing messages on it to support, of support to the protesters. That's, that's a really interesting way of, I, I guess, again, transforming public space and making making support for protesters. Protesters, you know, you know, very obvious sort of turning public space into to something that reflects the protesters' interests. Yeah. yeah. How have you felt watching this evolve as an urban sociologist? Like you said at the beginning of the interview, I'm a little bit worried. You know that the um, the Chinese government is making making a lot of veiled threats at the moment about about movement against the protesters. They've been putting out been putting out videos uh, attributed to the People's Liberation Army. Units in uh, in Hong Kong and advertising their their riot skills and and these sort of 
thing. So I, I don't know how much longer they're going to put up with this. Um, yeah, so you're probably those. feeling anxious like uh, many of us are. And um, yeah. certainly the protesters have shown a lot of strength that young man who has been punched in the face. We saw videos of that over the weekend or last week as well and just stood his ground after, you know, being punched in the face many times by, not by the police, but by just, uh, in fact, the police arrested the person, but just a, a, a local person who didn't support um, the protests. Yeah. Uh, there's an extraordinary depth of feeling about it. Even older people, retirees, are coming down and confronting the police in Hong Kong. Um, yes. And, and people and are saying, way. we didn't act when we had our chance. We should have acted long ago. Yes, that's right. And, and I think there's also, I've been reading as well, there's a lot of, there's a bit of guilt from people who, who felt they should have done more during the original umbrella demonstrations and are now coming up, you know, coming out and sort of making amends for that. Mm. Peter, thank you so much for coming on. Sadly, we're running out of time. It's such a fascinating topic. But thank you so much for contributing your understanding as an urban sociologist, which I think is a particular perspective on the use of public space. So thanks so much. Thanks, Judith. And that was Peter Walters, who's an urban sociologist from the University of Queensland and uh, talking about how the Hong Kong protesters have been winning the battle for public space. And uh, indeed, they have. So coming up next, we're going to be uh, talking again, uh, uh, related to democracy, but not quite, but on populism. Um. I want to give a shout out to 3CR. Two groups of 3CR here. We've got Wednesday Breaking, we've got Radioactive, and like for the heart and soul of documenting stuff that goes on in this city of five million people, bloody magnificent institution as well as revolutionary radio. Hi, I'm Mo Louie and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM Radical Radio on digital and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. As we said earlier in the show, Alice isn't with us this morning. She's in the UK um, sorting things out there. <laughs> but uh, before she left, she was kind enough to do an interview with um, Benjamin Moffat yeah, about populism. So she's going to introduce her guest, and here's Alice. Today we're going to be speaking to Dr. Benjamin Moffat, author of The Global Rise of Populism, Performance, Political Style and Representation. We're going to be speaking in more detail about populism, its place in politics and the masters in this political movement. Thank you so much for joining us on Monday Breakfast. What does the term populism really mean and how is it different from any other political style? Populism basically refers to any form of politics that sees the core cleavage in society as one between the people versus the elite. So whereas socialism generally divides that poor cleavage between different classes or uh, liberalism individuals against other individuals, it's all about the people versus the elite in populism. There's debates within academia about what kind of thing it is, whether it's an ideology, whether it's a strategy that different politicians use. I define it as a particular political style with three main features, that it appeals to the people versus the elite, that it utilises what I call bad manners, and by that I mean populist act in ways that uh, we may not expect other politicians, you know, to quote-unquote normally act like, and I think Donald Trump's kind of the best example here. And the third feature is that there's always a proclamation or appeal to crisis, a breakdown or threat. Populists 
not only respond to a sense of crisis, but actively try to whip up and uh, perpetuate a sense of crisis. So is it more of an insult as as to a compliment if you label somebody a populist or not? Well, we're in interesting times in that regard. When it first developed, it was a self-proclaimed term. The People's Party of the US Midwest in the late 19th century kind of nicknamed themselves the populists and ran with it. But it got a kind of bad name as the century went on and became associated particularly with kind of autocrats in Latin America on the left, strongmen style politics. Later in the century, it became almost exclusively for some time associated with the radical right, particularly in Europe, with the rise of Jean-Marie Le Pen, first of all, and then his daughter, Marine Le Pen, in France, and the assortment of, of parties doing quite well in the European political landscape on the right. But what's happened recently, and when I say recently, I mean only in the last kind of two years or so, is that we've seen a number of these parties, these leaders and movements, kind of actively take the term back. Steve Bannon, former chief strategist for Trump and former executive chairman of Breitbart, says he's building a global populist movement. The alternative for Germany has said we're a populist party. Matteo Salvini, uh, also his movement and party, are populist. So there's been a shift, some kind of shift going on where people are kind of happy to start claiming it for themselves. Well, we've just seen Boris Johnson newly appointed as the Conservative leader and PM of the UK. Did he use populism? Could you see that across his politics? To some extent. I mean, I don't think he's a full-blown out-and-out populist in the form of someone like Nigel Farage Mm. uh, in in the UK context, but he certainly has played with it on and off throughout his career. At least, you know, if you define it stylistically, as I did before, he certainly has that kind of sense of using bad manners, making, you know, what some in the media call gaffes, what people might more accurately call racist, homophobic, sexist remarks, and the kind of shaggy-haired, naughty-eaten, educated schoolboy shtick has done him well in separating him from quote-unquote mainstream politicians. But certainly since the Leave campaign for Brexit and him being one of the most visible faces of that campaign along with Nigel Farage, discourse has taken on a far more populist bent because he's been able to target very effectively. The elite for him is not necessarily domestic, and this goes for a lot of European populists. They're in Brussels. It's the EU elite. There's an outside force that's able to be targeted as this elite that the people are against. You know, Boris Johnson is such a member of the establishment, such a member of the elite. He's been bred for it through all the schooling and the media channels he's worked in. That's how some of the establishment still sell themselves as kind of some hero of the people against a distant, cold Brussels technocrat. Is Australia's populist experience different to what we've seen in the rest of the world? Sometimes there's this narrative that Australia has kind of escaped the populist scourge that particularly Europe has experienced. But I think the simplistic narrative that's patting ourselves on the back a little too much. Pauline Hanson, I know she disappeared in the 2000s for a while, but one nation has re-established itself and now Mark Latham's in one of the strangest ideological journeys I've ever seen, you know, yep. heading them up in New South Wales. The reason I think One Nation Mark One did so poorly is because the Howard government the coalition was able to effectively mainstream their platform. They took all their policies, gave Mm. them a little more veneer of respectability, 
and didn't really give them much to campaign on. Whereas asylum seekers, immigration and the like are seriously hot topic issues for populists to capitalise on in a number of countries in Europe. I mean, how do you outdo coalition and Labor in sheer cruelty to asylum seekers and immigration? They've shifted the scene so much. The second point is that the Liberal National Coalition has also been a relatively accepting home, I think, of people we would consider, at least on the populist radical right, if they were in the European party system. So people like George Christensen, Corey Bernardi, who I know left party and is mulling a a return, people like this, you know, are populist radical right politicians. Tony Abbott flirted very much with populist kind of right politics as well. So I don't think Australia should let itself off scot-free. And certainly it can't let itself off scot-free. And if you've just tuned in, we're listening to an interview with um, Dr. Benjamin Moffat, from the Australian Catholic University, and uh, he's speaking with Alison. This was just, I think, last uh, Monday this interview was uh, recorded. So here's Alice again. Could you talk to us a bit about how populist movements utilise social media and if it's a really important tool for their campaigns? This is where populists are kind of winning their political communication war to some extent. Part of the appeal of populism is this idea that you're being spoken directly to. There's no BS. I'm not going through my mates who are intermediaries at the Australia newspapers that are just kind of pumping out my party line. I'm not going through television necessarily. What social media allows populists to do is to really play into that sense of connecting directly to you. I'm sending my message. I am close to the people. I'm listening to the people. I know what they want, and I'm not going to let the elite get in the way of them. The most effective mix of digital politics I think we've seen and populism has been the Five Star Movement in Italy, which was headed up by a comedian named Beppe Grillo. He got the largest vote in the last Italian election and governed indeed with a populist right party. They say we're not a party, we're a movement and we have votes online for different policies they were going to send as their EU, their members for the EU parliament. And the interesting thing is that Nigel Farage now that he's out of UKIP, has basically copied their model to launch the Brexit party. It's heavily controlled by him. It's not kind of a traditional party. It's a platform more than anything that gives the appearance of being an old-school political party and gives members the sense that they are, you know, being heard. I know there are quite a lot of different theories about whether populism threatens democracy or not, but do you have any thoughts on, on the theory that it does threaten democracy? What I think it does threaten to some regard is liberal democracy. I think we need to be clear here. Populists are Democrats. They just have a rather majoritarian reading of democracy. Whatever the majority says goes. The good thing where we live in a liberal democracy is that the liberal part of that provides protection for minorities who would otherwise maybe be trodden on or affected negatively by that majoritarian rule. They have no taste for those liberal niceties or the protection of minorities and see that as something of a perversion of the true will of the people. That can be threatening, and I think that particularly takes on a threatening path when it's, when it's mixed with racism or nativism, which, which happens on the populist right. At the same time, I think those on the populist left parties like Podemos, I think leaders like Evo Morales in Bolivia, these populists on the left, we need to acknowledge they've done good things for democracy in their countries, bringing in inclusion 
in democracies that were not functioning very well and bringing voices in to be heard that simply were, were previously ignored, whether it was the poor, whether it was the young, whether it was Indigenous people. So it's a case-by-case situation in that regard. It's not a great thing for kind of established, advanced liberal democracies often, but on the path to democratisation, it can sometimes be a corrective thing. Do you think that policies and um, campaigns built around populism are constructive or destructive in the long term? I don't think populism is an effective long-term strategy for politics. However, there's been debates about Corbynism in the UK and Bernie Sanders' campaign in the US. I think when things are crazy and there is strife, the politics of consensus, the politics of moderation are just not going to work in certain times and contexts. I think it can be a highly effective style to utilise in order to cut through. The problem with it in the long term is you always have to keep looking for elites. You have to keep looking for the establishment to target. And I think if you look at the the example of Hugo Chavez's project, I mean, he just went through a laundry list of enemies. In the end, it was a global conspiracy headed by the US. And I think the same thing goes for Trump. It's a deep state conspiracy against him, allegedly. You always have to have that sense of crisis. You always have to have that enemy. And I don't think in the long term that's a particularly healthy or effective strategy for maintaining power without it sliding into some form of authoritarian strongman politics. Well, thank you so much, Benjamin, for joining us today. You're listening to 3CR, and I've just been speaking to Dr. Benjamin Moffitt, author of The Global Rise of Populism, Performance, Political Style and Representation. Yeah, and a big thank you to Alice for, for that interview and just fascinating what's happening around populism in the world and great um, to hear Benjamin Moffat's um, take on that. You're on 3CR Monday Breakfast. Hard rock miners To the shaft house We must go Oil bottles on our shoulders We are marching to the slow On the line, boys On the line, boys Drill your holes and stand in line Till the shift bars Comes to tell you You must drill her out on time Can't you feel the rock dust in your lungs It'll cut down a miner when he is still young Two years and the silicosis takes hold And I feel like I'm dying from mining for gold Yes, I feel like I'm dying from mining for gold Mining for Gold, and it's from um, Cowboy Junkie's album, The Trinity Session. I've always found it a really moving piece, Mm. and um, I thought very appropriate for the conversation we're now going to have with uh, Dr. Paul Sutton. So um, you may remember, Dean, I don't know if you noticed, in February the, the ABC reported that an audit of Queensland's manufacturing stone industry 
revealed 98 workers had contracted the potentially deadly lung disease silicosis, and the government identified more than 550 workplace breaches. So health experts are calling that a major epidemic and have labelled it the next asbestos. Mm. But last Wednesday, Safe Work Australia delayed the introduction of a standard for silica dust that could save lives, and Dr. Paul Sutton joins us now. He's the lead organiser for occupational health and safety with Victorian Trades Hall Council. So welcome to 3CR Monday Breakfast, Paul. Hey, good morning, everyone. Bright and early. Yeah, yeah, it is, and for us and for you too. So thanks, and yeah, thanks for making time. Now I'm wondering if people. I mean, one of the things Dean said earlier is we haven't heard so much about silicosis. We've a lot of us know about asbestos, but can you just explain what silicosis is? We've known about this condition for a long, long time. So back in the 19th century, they used to call it potter's rot, um, being an industrial disease. Um, for, for centuries, basically. It's similar to asbestosis and also um, black lung, coal miners' pneumocosis, in that it, it's a disease based around um, dust getting into the lung. In this case, crystalline silica dust. That dust gets into the lung. The dust is so fine and so small that, that once it's in, it, it's not going to come out. And slowly but surely, the dust begins to scar the lung tissue. Um, so it damages the tissue, the tissue heals as it normally would, but it heals into scar tissue, and, and scar tissue doesn't function like lung tissue, so what used to be able to breathe, i.e. transfer oxygen into the bloodstream and, and carbon dioxide out, out of the bloodstream, um, stops being able to do so. So it basically impedes, scars the lung tissue and impedes the lungs from being able to function properly. So how do you say people have been getting it for a long, long time? But right now, you know, right now in 2019, how are people getting it? So the, the cluster where we're spotting at the moment is in the stonemasonry industry and it's particularly related to artificial stone. So, oh, really? Uh, okay. Examples like Caesar. Yeah, that's right. Your ben, kitchen bench tops, Caesar stone, this kind of thing. Um, and the... the the basic problem is is that the natural stones that we would use for bench tops, say granite or marble, they have um, less than 30% crystalline silica content. Artificial stones that, that are being used these days can have well over 90% crystalline silica content. So, so this are, is fairly new then, this artificial stone, I would think. Yeah, it's been in use for 10 to 20 years. Uh, but the we, we shouldn't forget that um, silicosis is a disease that can strike in, in many different ways. The cluster is in the stonemasonry industry, but this past 12 to 24 months in Victoria, we've had workers diagnosed with silicosis in quarries. We've also had a couple of teachers in high schools diagnosed with silicosis, and they've contracted it from teaching pottery. Really? Mm. Oh, that, I mean that's interesting. I I have um I remember um some years ago I knew a person who was a potter who'd made a kiln using a, a kind of silicon fiber for firing the pots, and mm. he told me that he when he went to buy that, there were all these people working in the factory, no protective gear yeah, at no all. Masks, and that was yeah. in the eighties, nineteen eighties. No yeah. masks, and yeah. many of them were were Vietnamese or people who'd recently migrated. I spoke to an all health and safety person I knew within the this was in New South Wales in the Department of Health, and uh, he mentioned it, and no one wanted to know. Mm. <laughs> I was I was only, I yeah. was new to Australia, and I was shocked. 
Yes. Pretty so, shocking. And, yeah. you know, this is, it, you know, it's essentially industry, right? Like industry want to make big bucks out of this. People are prepared to pay a lot for these stained bench tops. Um, they're going into all the apartments and all the new houses that are being built. And, you know, the people who make these stone bench tops are making a killing out of it, like literally, you know, they're killing their workers, but they're taking home mega bucks to the bank. And, you know, again, we see the power of industry when recently SafeWork Australia has made a decision that they're, they're going to reduce the exposure standard, but they're not going to reduce it to a safe level, the, the level that the Cancer Council was pushing for. Um, and they're going to take a, a long time to implement it by the sounds of things. Up to three years is what we're being told. Yes. Um, and the fact is, is with this artificial stone, people are being, people are contracting silicosis <clears throat> within five to six years of exposure. Mm. So it's really, you know... The, and so the, you're getting the, young people, a lot of young people then, I would think. In their 30s, 20s and yeah. 30s. Men in their 20s and 30s. And, you know, this is a condition that's irreversible. It's not... Can't, um, you can't take some drugs and it goes away and it's all better again. Uh, they can give you a lung transplant. That might buy you another 10 years of life. Um, there's some new techniques being tried in America called lung flushing, but the, the science is still out on whether that works or not. Um, so, you know, there is no cure for this. Um, and, and deadly in, in a percentage yeah. of cases, I understand. Yes, that's correct. And, Paul, are the new sort of preventative measures, I mean, obviously in the last six months in Queensland alone there were over 100 stone masons that have been diagnosed. Are the new I guess working conditions and preventative areas where these young men working, uh, to, will they eliminate the chance of getting, um, you know, the, the, the silica going into the yeah. lungs? So this is why the exposure standard is really, really important. The exposure standard is a legal obligation on the employer to not expose their workers to anything, to anything greater than the standard. Um, and so that standard is really important for driving the changes we need to see in industry. There are solutions out there. There are companies trialling machines which can cut and polish the stone um, in an entirely sealed environment. The worker stands outside the machine and the dust is all captured inside the machine and therefore none of the dust gets into the atmosphere. There also, you know, we can substitute the products, right? Like we don't need to use this artificial stone. People can use granite, people can use marble. There yeah. are natural alternatives which are much, much, much safer for the workers. So they're, they're, they're two things that people are looking at. People are also looking at a combination of controls. So in Victoria, they've pledged to ban dry cutting, which is really good. Um, wet cutting still has its problems, but it, it is safer than dry cutting. Uh, and then you can also have on-the-machine extraction tools, which suck the dust up as, as, as the cut's made and reduces the amount of dust that gets up into the worker's breathing zone. And finally, as you've already kind of said, um, there are a variety of breathing masks out there, um, but you need to be wearing a really good quality one and you need to be changing the filters out quite often. Yes, and how prevalent, I mean, how common in workplaces are these preventative measures? I mean, Queensland has identified quite a few breaches. I'm wondering uh, how generally are they used? Oh, look, Workplace Victoria has been doing similar things down here with, you know, inspection blitzes into the, stone masonry industry and they're, they're, you know, like in all things, they're finding a variety. Um, 
to some employers who who have a lot of good measures in place and some employers have, have few to no measures in place. So it's an employer-by-employer employer prospect in, in terms of what, what controls are being used at any given time. Is it a state-by-state um, state process as well? Like, do different states have different standards? No, there's one national standard at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, the... There's differences, I guess, the state, there's no differences in the science between the states or the controls that are available between the states. I mean, the, the industry, you know, the kind of equipment they sell in Victoria is the same kind of equipment that they sell in Queensland or Tasmania or Western Australia. Um, I guess the, the, the other big difference between the states would be the willingness of the regulator to get out and, and regulate that industry. Right. Mm-hmm. And you've said that, you know, the new standard is not going to, so with 0.05 forward slash M3 is what I understand, and that it's not, it's been delayed, like it's not going to be implemented for three years, or at least that's what you're hearing. And not only that, though, it's not the highest standard. That's right, it's not. So the, the standard that the Cancer Council, that Trades Hall here in Victoria, and a number of other unions were pushing for with 0.02 milligrams per metre cubed over an eight-hour time-weighted average is the technical um, one. So they've opted for, it sounds like what they've opted for is 0.05, which that's an improvement. Don't get me wrong. They've halved it. I don't want to denigrate that. I I do just want to say that that's not the safest option that was on the table. Not Um, best practice. with a, a number of other jurisdictions, but... They could have really decided to lead the world on this and do what they can to help employers eradicate silicosis from the workplace, but they they chose not to do that. And even more concerning was the news that we're hearing that, that it could be up to a three-year implementation period. And so that'll be a, a, I'm just going to say, what can we do? I mean, there must be something the public can do. If, if it's not, they haven't definitely said three years yet. So the process is that the heads of all the authorities got together and voted on what they think the new exposure standard should be. The department, Safe Work Australia, has now written to all the ministers in each state responsible for workplace health and safety. Um, They're asking those ministers to, to ratify that decision. So, you know... Possibly um, there's two things that, that people could do. They could contact their local um, workplace safety minister here in Victoria, Jill Hennessy, and just say, look, you know, 0.05, it's a good step, but it needs to go to 0.02. Um, and, and brought in immediately, I would think. Yes, that's right. Yeah. It's possible. So would they need to get some more letters by, by the sound of it? Um, I suspect so. It's also, I mean, you know, we, ha- we have to so each, because it's a harmonised system, they will, um, you know, they'll be looking to get affirmative responses from all the ministers. So it's, it's not just a matter of, um, you know, Victoria saying no or something like that. Like, we'll need to contact every single minister. So there's a bit of work in it. Yes. Um, Paul, the other well, option is Victoria could go it alone, you know. Yes. The down here has power to make regulations in relation to exposure standards. So, you know, if Jill Hennessy is minded to, she could write a regulation for 0.02 here in Victoria 
Um, uh, yes, Paul, we're, unfortunately we're going to have to wind it up and um, I really appreciate you coming on early this morning and I think it's an urgent matter because health experts are already calling it a major epidemic and uh, and they've labeled it the next asbestos so we can't wait on this. No. So so thank you for you know, bringing our attention to, to this issue and also to the details and what's needed to be done. Great to talk to you this morning, Paul. Not a problem. Have a good morning. Thank you. You too. Thank you. We're going to have to say a quick goodbye because Women on the Line is next. That's right. And a big thank you to all our guests this morning. 3cr.org.au. Come in and listen uh, online. 3CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall. You can check them out at nibs.org.au. And if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03 9419 8377. Welcome to Women on the Line, one of Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs programs. Produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio.